All right. Uh, here, let me give you an idea of what's going on. Um, first of all, my name is John Chambers. I'm the pastor here. Um, if this is your first week, I can see there's a lot of new faces. Um, this is the last week we'll be in this building. Um, so we want, we want you to know that you're welcome, but please come back next week, but not here, but to the other building, which is downtown, um, one mile exactly from here. Um, but let me give you an idea of what's going on. We've been going through the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, you can go and open up to 1 Timothy. If you don't have one, there's one underneath every row. Take it. It's yours. Please keep it. Uh, if you already have one and you know someone that needs one, take that one and give it to them. We want those to be given out as for free. Um, but here's the deal. We've been going through 1 Timothy and we just finished chapter 1 last week. So we're starting chapter two this week. Now, if you look, um, there's verses one through seven in chapter two, which we are not going to do today. Um, we're going to skip forward to verses 18 through 15. I'm sorry, not 18, eight through 15. Um, and the reason why is this. If we had done verses one through seven this week, then next week, week one in the new building, if we get a whole bunch of people, I'm having to deal with this verse. Let a woman learn quietness. Uh, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she was to remain quiet. And I thought, you know, week one, new building, new buzz. I don't really want to open up with that. So um, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to do that this week. And so everybody's like, oh, my gosh, how's he going to answer that? I'll tell you, um, Paul doesn't hate women. Um, that's the guy that wrote the book. Uh, we are going to we are going to do these verses this week. Next week, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, the very first couple weeks in uh, August or, or I'm sorry, September, we talked about who remedy is. This is who we are. This is remedy. We believe this. We believe this. This is what we want to accomplish. Um, we're going to do something similar to that next week, except um, instead of talking about who we are, we're going to more talk about what we want to accomplish, the potential of remedy church in the city. That'll be what we do next week. And then the week after that, we'll do verses 1 through 7. And the week after that, we'll go to elders. So today, we're going to do 8 through 15. And um, you'll, you'll see why. If, well, I've already read it to you, but you'll get an understanding. Now, um, just a couple things before we read the text. I want to I kind of open your eyes to. If, if you've never really read verses like this in the Bible and like, that's in there? What? Um, let me give you a, a couple ways you can approach this. Um, you can either approach this uh, either as, all right, this is the authoritative word of God, and I'm going to listen to it, submit my life to it, and, and believe it. Or you can kind of approach it, um, and I just, I was thinking of this this week as I was standing on the scale. Um, you can approach it as a scale, and this is what I mean. Um, I'm talking about the actual thing that tells you your weight. Um, both of them are telling you the truth, but one is not very encouraging and it never lies, but it, it's not very good truth. Every time, and I've noticed this really in the last couple years of my life. It wasn't the, it wasn't really in the, in my twenties. And some of you that are in twenty, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Don't worry. When you get to thirty, you'll understand completely what I'm talking about about stepping on the scale. You step on it, and you're like, that can't be right. But you know, it doesn't lie, and it's not very encouraging. And it always tells you the truth, but it doesn't ever like say anything nice to you afterwards. It just kind of beats you up, and you walk away like, oh man. You can approach the Word of God this way. You can think as I read this, it's just exposing things that I don't like. It's telling me the truth, but I'm going to be mad at it because it's not very encouraging. That's not how we want to approach it. We want to think, all right, this is the word of God. He's written it for us. Um, and so what I'm going to do instead of getting mad at it and say, you're not very nice. Um, I'm going to approach it saying, all right, there's reasons why he wrote this. There, we need to understand and he's always encouraging because he's God. He's the creator of everything. So I want to read the text and then we'll pray. All right. Verse 8 through 15. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now you can see why I waited. Um, 
but I'm going to answer all your questions. And there is a lot. I've got a lot. Um, and I'm going to try to unpack all of this for us so that we can, we can really understand it all. But before I do that, I'm going to pray for help. So let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you, God, for your word. We know that it's true. We know that it's good. And where we might not understand, um, we know that the Holy Spirit's given to us to lead us into truth. And so, Lord, I pray that um, as we read this and as we, as we learn from it, that we would take these words and, and form our lives around what the truth of your word is. And, Lord, I pray for myself, God, that you would please keep me from error this morning, that, that every sentence that I say will be truth and what's most helpful here this morning. And, Lord, for um, the things that wouldn't be helpful that you would keep me from those things. Lord, I pray for everyone here um, that maybe they haven't heard verses like this before, haven't thought about these things. God, that you would come now by the power of the Spirit and um, soften their hearts to your, to your word and soften their hearts to your truth and that they would want to, they would want to submit their lives to it, um, not begrudgingly, but willingly. And I pray also for, for men here, Father, that they would hear these verses and not take these verses as a pass to be um, or a license to be some kind of caveman barbarian who demands his way. But Lord, that he would, um, he would remember that you, Christ, came for his bride and that you were willing to die for her. And that's the type of lives that we should lead as men, humble servants um, who love our wives and who want to serve those who are women around us. Father, we, I just pray for help this morning. I love you and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there is a, a woman, her name's Margaret Dowd. She's a feminist and she ran a study um, just recently. And I heard this on the Albert Moeller radio show this week. And he said that women in 1972 were polled and women now were polled. And they were asked the very same question. Um, do you find yourself gradually becoming more happy or less happy? And, and they asked the same thing to men. Um, and in 1972, women, the answer that they gave was, I find myself becoming more and more happy. But today, three, century, three, not, sorry, three decades later, um, yeah, 300 years later, no, no, um, women say that they found themselves becoming more and more sad or less and less happy. And so um, he was giving an idea of why. And the, the way she wrote, which was... Um, in 1972, women mostly worried about the family and, and, and their children and things around that. And that's what kind of made them happy or sad. But today, they have that exact same thought. But also, they have their career in which they want to be successful. So all the added pressures are making them more and more sad. Um, I think there's more to it than just that. But I think there's some truth in there, which is the rise of feminism um, in the late 60s, early 70s has put added, this, this is the words she used. Now women um, not only are going to be mothers, but also they, they can be career driven. Um, and, and she said, these are the words she used. She used the words opt out. Some women who don't want to be career driven can opt out of being career driven and just be a mother. As if that's some kind of like lower class, second citizen type of decision. Um, I think that whole mindset over the last 30 years, and specifically for some of you that are young, that have been raised by boomer mothers who have, who have said, you have to have, and, and I'm not saying be, having a career is bad. Um, having a career as a woman is good because you never know what's going to happen in life. But if you're raised where if you don't have a career, you're not successful, um, then you're going to approach texts like this. And be upset. It, there's more women that get more upset about this text now than they did in 1972. And I think it's because of the added pressures of feminism of that you must have a career. And if you just want to be a mom, you're kind of opting out of things. And you're not necessarily um, fulfilling all that you can be by just being a mom. Um, which is just not true. I, I, uh, I've been married 11 years. And my wife, um, she works just as hard as I do. Um, with three children and one on the way. I can't, I mean, it's just mind-blowing how much work she can get done in a day. And I, I really don't think that I could do it. Um, but God has designed us differently. God has made women 
and men differently. And I think this is something that's pretty obvious, but sometimes it's not so obvious. Like one thing I noticed, um, I didn't know when I got married that every time I, I was going to take a shower that I was going to find a wig um, there in the bottom of the shower. I didn't realize this um, because, you know, it's amazing if you have long hair, how much hair is in the shower. It's not something I realized, but there's there's obvious differences here between men and women. Um, I wrote down just a few differences as I was writing this sermon. Um, directions um, is, is another is another clear one. Um, I don't really have to say much more than that. Besides, we're not stopping, um, and they are. Um, here's some other ones. Men need about five things in the bathroom: toothbrush, toothpaste, um, a razor, and some soap. Women have about 437 objects in the bathroom. Most of which I still can't identify. Um, there's some rock something or another. I think that I don't even know what it is. Um, I still don't know. Um, the other one is this communication. I mean, honestly, um, I was reading an article. If you just Google differences between men and women, it, they said that men on average per day will speak somewhere around 14 to 15,000 words per day. Women will speak somewhere around 25, 26,000 words per day. Um, and, and they said that what happens is um, men will speak, if you speak 14,000, will speak 13,995 at work. And then they'll get home and they'll speak the other five. It's what's for dinner. That's the three. And the other two are good night. And that's it. And the women want to talk and the men's like out of words. I'm out of words. I have nothing else to say. But women can speak about. Now, um, for my wife, most of those 25,000 are really to three-year-olds and five-year-olds. So I can't imagine this deep conversation. So when we get home, they're dying for some, like some adult conversation and we're out, we're, at, we're done with words. And so that's why women usually feel like my husband, I don't know who he is. I don't know what he, he never tells me anything. I hear that all the time. You never tell me anything and I, I'm trying to get better. But these are just some obvious things. Um, there was one other one that I, that I was thinking about is that uh, 17, 18-year-old girls between 17 and 18-year-old guys, there's a major difference here. 17, 18-year-old girls can almost function as a full-fledged adult in society, while 17, 18-year-old guys are still um, playing, base or playing video games and collecting baseball cards, and they're pretty much like there's a big difference in age, it seems, between the two. But the key is, is that God has created us different. Um, and so as we, we go into this text, we want to realize that there are major differences between us. Now, um, Volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes have been written on these eight verses. Um, and a lot of people who love, Bible, who love the Bible and who love Christ um, have had different ideas on how to interpret these texts. Lots of people. And so as we come to this, we don't ever want to say, because I interpret this text differently, I don't think you love Jesus the same way I love Jesus. Or I don't think you love the Bible the same way I love the Bible. There is a way, as Christians... To have conversations regarding the things we disagree. And so we just want to remember that we need to have um, primarily the mind and attitude of Christ. As we go into texts like this and though we might disagree. Now, I do believe that there is a, um, as we look at text, there may be multiple applications for one verse. But there's always one right interpretation. There's not multiple interpretations. There's just one. And so I want to kind of... Tell you who I am before we go any further so you can know where I'm coming from the entire time. I'm conservative. Um, there's really two views that people kind of go here, two major views that people go. One's called complementarianism and one's called egalitarianism. If you've never heard these words, they're really simple. Complementarianism means that men and women have been created by God to complement one another. They complement in their roles, which means their value is equal. They are both equally valuable in the eyes of God, both equally made in the image of God, both equally um, given the availability for salvation through Christ. There is no difference in their value. However, in their roles as men and women, they complement one another, meaning that men have been designed to be more in the headship um, in the church and in the home. And women come alongside, as Genesis 2, Genesis 2 says, as a helper, and they complement one another. Egalitarianism um, is, is different than that. They say the exact same thing in the first part. Men and women are created equally in the eyes of God because, of the, because they've been created in the image of God that they both are available for salvation equally, which we would agree on. However, they say, as far as roles go, there is no distinction in roles. Men and women both 
can serve as the leader or the headship in the family or in the church. That's basically the difference. Um, I am a complementarian. So just to let you know where I am as we're going to go through this text. Um, so you're not wondering what I believe and how I'm getting the things I, uh, how, how I get the things I believe. All right. Now we're going to start with verse eight and verse eight um, is really the, uh, the connecting verse between verses one through seven and verses nine through 15. It says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now you'll notice um, this word men is used specifically because in verses one through seven, um, which if we were going in order, I would have pointed it out a week ago, but I'll point it out in two weeks, is that um, Paul really talks about men a lot in verses 1 through 5. He says, man, 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 and then he goes, the man. So he's trying to point a bunch of things to the man, which is Christ. And so here, Paul's taking this, this verse 8 and transitioning it so he can talk about women in verse 9. That's why he says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting up holding hands without anger. And then he uses that word, likewise, that women should. So what he wants in verse 8 for you to see is that men should pray, lifting holy hands. So he's wanting you to see men should be holy. Men should desire to be righteous and holy in the church. Remember, this is a letter written to a pastor from an elder telling him how churches should look and churches should function. So everything I'm going to tell you today are guidelines for church. And so he's saying here that men should be holy in verse 8. Likewise, and then he's going to tell us this is how women should strive for holiness in the church in verses 9 through 15. All right, so let's look at verse 8. Um, Paul continues in this idea of telling men to lift up holy hands, praying with sincerity. And he's, he's telling this because he wants them to have moral purity. And he's saying that men, we cannot pray effectively unless our lives are clean and they're committed to our Lord Jesus Christ. So it, it's important as men that we, um, we come to God in prayer. And this holy hands, this lifting holy hands is really carrying the idea of moral purity. We need to be morally pure. Morally pure. That's hard to say. Um, and also, as we're going into verse 9, he wants women to do that. And this is what he says. So let me give you the, the title of today's sermon. It's three principles for women in worship in the church. Three principles for women um, in worship in the church. It should be, maybe it's, uh, yeah, point one will come up if I do that. So um, and let me just kind of tell you this. Point one and point two um, are given towards women. However, um, men can also practice these two things. Point one and point two, there are principles out of both of them. Clear, obvious, like direct principles that men can, can get from points one and two. Point three is not that, ca- that, not that way. Point three is just for women. And you'll see what I'm ta- going to talk about when we first go in there. All right, let's look at verse nine. It says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair. What? You're like, what? Braided hair? Come on. Or costly, um, not with gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. All right, here's, here's the first thing I want you to see. Now it should be up here. Here we go. Three principles of women in worship. Here it is. Women must exercise modesty and dress for the purpose of godliness. And that's what he's telling us. In verses 9, look what he's saying. Likewise, women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair. So we we know that we need to be modest. Um, Not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. Now we can see that this is a clear principle for men as well. Men also should um, dress in modest in modest means. Now, I just want to give you an idea of what I mean by modesty and dress. Um, there's really two ideas I'm wanting to carry in this modesty for dress, and they're both in the text. Um, they are, number one, the clear one, that the way you dress should not draw eyes to your body. Um, that's the first one. But also, that Paul is trying to tell you, is that we should also practice modesty in the, the amount of money we spend on our clothes. It's in there. All right, now let me explain to you what some of these things are um, about braiding hair and respectable apparel um, and what all this means. First of all, the, the expositor's commentary was talking about um, why, he, why he chooses braided hair and why he chooses golden pearls. Um, he says, at worst, 
This is what prostitutes did. At best, it shows pride and self-centeredness, both of which are contrary to the spirit of Christ. Another commentary that I was reading was talking about braids. Um, I don't know why, but 2,000 years ago, women that wore braids, um, it kind of represented those women who considered themselves to be um, really, really, really rich. And so if you wore that, um, these are two different ideas, I know, but um, if you did that, then you're kind of coming there saying, I'm really rich and I care about money more than anything. And so the principle that we're going to pull out today, um, because clearly in, in America, um, if you wear braids, it doesn't mean that you're a prostitute or that you're really, really rich. My girls wear braids all the time and they have no money. Um, I've got a five and three year old. Um, so <clears throat> it doesn't mean anything like that. So what I want to pull out here is this, that modesty and dress is the key for us. Modesty and dress and what we're wearing and how much we spend on it. Um, now, it says in verse 10 that women should profess godliness with good works. The goal of this is that they would be godly. Um, we don't want women in the church to look like the world. We want them to be godly. We want them to, to look like Christians um, as they go through this world, shining out a light to the world that Jesus is more precious to them. Jesus is more important to them. Their relationship with him is more important than the relationships that they can get from men or from other women based on how they dressed, either whether it's too little clothing or the amount of money they spend on their clothing. We don't, we don't want to look like the world in this. Um, Jesus clearly desires for women to be modest. Modesty is completely needed today in today's church. And the reason why is this is not just for the personal benefit of you. It's not you're not dressing modest because Jesus wants you to dress modest. So I'm going to do it. So I'll be more holy. It's also for the holiness of your Christian brothers. Um, when you don't dress modestly, it causes them to not be holy. And so God wants, as we see in verse eight, men to be holy. So if God wants men to be holy, he also desires women to be holy. So men need for women to dress modestly so that they can pursue holiness at the same type of levels and strides as you are. Um, here's another thing that I want you to think about. By not guarding your Christian brother's eyes and the way you dress, you tell God directly that I just don't care about other people's holiness as much as I care about myself. And God desires for his church to be holy. And the church is made up of men and women. So yes, you should be holy, but you also should desire for the men to be holy. It, it should not be, um, in today's culture, in today's America, it shouldn't be any surprise that the majority um, of people that actually go to church are women. Did you know this? Did you know that almost 60 to 65% of churchgoers are women and not men? Um, I think probably one of the reasons is, is that a lot of men feel defeated in their Christian life and they've just kind of given up on it because they don't feel any any strength about conquering sin in their life. So they, they feel no desire to want to go to church. They feel no desire to want to lead their family because they've they've reached the point where they think I'm a failure at the Christian life. I can't get it right. And, and it might not necessarily be in, the, in this this issue of modesty, but it probably is. And so they just give up going. And so what we want is for women to care more about the relationship with Christ more than the relationship that men might give them. And remember this, that Christ is always going to see you as beautiful. Women, you need to know that. Christ is always going to see you as beautiful. But not necessarily physically, but in the most important thing, which is your inward beauty. Your inward beauty is more important than your outward beauty. I know if you're young right now, you, you can't possibly grasp this. But as you get older, and I'm just going to promise you, time will work against you. If you fight for your physical appearance and try to make your husband or your boyfriend love your, your outward beauty more than your inward beauty, it's working against you. If you think about this logically, you can grow in inward beauty from 17 to 27 to 37, 87. You can grow in your inward beauty. You cannot grow in your outward beauty as you go in age, things start misshaping. Things start shagging. LBs start hopping on you. Like, from where did this come from? I mean, it's just you can't help it. Especially as you have children, um, and you just get older, and you just become, you know, maybe you like chocolate more as you get. I don't know, but um, don't try to fight for outward beauty 
as the thing that's going to attract men. I know that that's almost landing on deaf ears if you're still in your teens or in your 20s. But I can just promise you, as you get older, if you find or if you if you desire to make your husband love you primarily because of your outward beauty, not your inward, as you get older, your marriage will not be very, very fun. And husbands don't find or future husbands don't find all your joy in your wife based on outward beauty rather than inward beauty. Because inward beauty can grow better. The outward beauty is just a fight against the clock. Now, I know that I've depressed you, but the scale is not your friend as you get older. It's just not. You can try everything you can, but I guarantee you, when you hit your 30s and your metabolism changes, that's it. Um, Now that I've depressed you, I want you to know that Christ, however, um, is the person that you need to find your... Your beauty from. And he will always see you beautiful in your inward beauty. Because, and here's the most amazing thing why. How can he always see me as inwardly beautiful if I'm a Christian? Here's the, here's the reason why. Because he has given you the inward beauty that you have. Because he has paid the penalty for you on the cross. Thereby washing away all of your sin. Washing away all of your sinful desires to, to be found beautiful in the eyes of men rather than God. He, he washes all that away. And puts within you inward beauty. His beauty because he's been perfectly obedient to the law. And makes you beautiful because he is beautiful. And you grow in that. Not in outward beauty. So the first thing I want to get you to understand is that women must practice modesty. In dress, which is the way they look and in the money that they, that they spend on their clothes. We should not as Christians. Um, we should not as Christians spend the most that we possibly can on our clothes whenever we can spend less and give money away to people that are poor, people that don't have money, people that are in need. If we look just like the world, if we buy a $200 pair of jeans rather than 40, I'm just picking jeans out of the, out of the blue here. Don't get mad because I pick jeans. I could say shirts, I could say whatever. Shoes, I mean, I, could, I know y'all have like 800 pairs of shoes and we have one. Um, but if you spend the most amount of money on a certain thing rather than less, and that difference, use that for the glory of God rather than yourself. You're not following this, this, this principle or this command from Scripture. Now, I want to peek over the eyes of John Piper here because I was listening to a sermon that he gave a long time ago. And this is, this is great stuff. And I want you to know why clothes are important. Why do we wear clothes? Um, besides the obvious, um, why is it like theologically, what's the purpose of clothes? Um, and how, if we dressed immodestly, that mars or messes up the purpose for clothes. Now, if you remember in Genesis 2, this should be up on the screen. This is Genesis 2. This is before the fall. This is before sin first entered. It closes with this verse, and you're like, what's the point of this verse? I don't get it. This is what it says in Genesis 2.25. Here it is. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is before the fall. Now, if you remember... After that, the fall, when Adam and Eve were said, don't eat this tree, and Eve got it and took it peace, and then they both ate it. This is what it says in Genesis 3. It should be up here too. Right after that happened, they went and hid themselves, and this is what it says. Uh, eight's not up there. Let me read eight, and then nine. you can join in for me at nine. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They hid. All right, verse nine. Here it is. But... The Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. All right. All of a sudden there's a transition. Chapter two, they were naked. And they weren't ashamed. Now he hears God, God coming. And so he starts hiding in the, in the trees. And so we're wanting to know why. And he said, um, verse verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? God knew the answer. All right. God knew the answer. Um, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He knows the answer. He's just, this is for the benefit of Adam. Um, then man said, the woman, of course, he's just blame shifting. Um, the woman who you gave me <clears throat> to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And then the God said to woman, she blame shifts, same thing. Um, we're all sinners now. And this is what we all do. Um, then the Lord said to the woman, um, what is it that you've done? The woman said, it's the serpent that deceived me and I ate. And so 
we look here at the very end of this little, it's a little exchange in Genesis 3. This will be up here. This is what God does. Um, verse 21, it says, And the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So after they had fallen, God still shows grace. Their, their nakedness and being ashamed is erased. Now if they're naked, they are ashamed. And now we all wear clothes. Why? Why did God do this? This is why. And this is straight from John Piper. Clothes serve as a reminder to us of the glory that was lost. Let me explain that. Before the fall, we were naked, not ashamed. We experienced a relationship with God that was perfect. There was no sin keeping us from a right relationship with God. Then, when the fall happened, that relationship was erased. And all of a sudden, we're, we're naked and we're ashamed. So God puts clothes on us as a reminder that we used to have this relationship with God that, that was perfect. Now it's gone. That glory which we experienced is now lost. So we wear clothes to remind us of that. Now, we must wear clothes in a way that's pleasing to God. Um, not in a way that erases or starts changing this reminder of the glory that's lost. Um, when we wear them in a way that brings glory to ourselves, drawing people's eyes towards us, rather than a way that preserves the intent of God, which is to remind us that we lost glory, we're changing the whole thing up. We're not doing it in a right way. So we need to cover things because that's the way God intended it so that we would be reminded, I used to experience, I as in because I'm in the line of Adam, used to experience a right relationship with God that's now gone. So I wear these clothes as a reminder to yearn for, desire to have that one day because I don't have it right now. And when I wear clothes in a different way, that reminder is erased because I'm bringing more glory to myself rather than trying to still point glory to God. So as we dress, we want to leave some things uncovered, like hands, which represent ready to go serve people. Feet, as Romans 12, 10 says, feet that are um, bringing the gospel or faces that as in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that should be radiant with the glory of God. Other than those types of things, we want to, we want to cover up the other things um, because we want to dress in a way that brings glory to God and serves other people and puts their needs in front of ours rather than our own. Um, I think that's all I'm going to say. I've got more to say on that, but I'm going to skip that so we can get to the good stuff. Um, all right. Let's go on to verse 11. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submiss submissiveness. Now, I just want to jump on that first little part of the sentence where it says, let a woman learn quietly. Um, we could just jump to the submissiveness part and how they need to remain quiet. But I also want to just jump on that very first part to bring out another principle, which is this. Um, this is number two. A woman should pursue a lifetime of study of the things of God. This is what you should be doing in the church. Now, obviously, men should do this as well. Men should also pursue a lifetime of study of the things of God. There should not be a laziness um, towards studying the things of God. Now, we know that if we just study and learn just as an end and of itself, that that's not good. If we just learn the things of God in order just to have more knowledge, then that's not good. We don't want to do that. We want to learn in, in order to develop within us a love for Jesus so that that will drive us on to worship him. So this is why we have knowledge. We don't just knowledge, uh, pursue knowledge as just an end, but so that we can have a deeper love for Christ. I want to read this text to you. From um, Ephesians 3. This is actually the text that we'll be looking at next week. But I just want to read this to you. Um, and let you see why we pursue knowledge. Not just as an end of in itself. Um, 1 Corinthians 8 1 said. Knowledge puffs up but loves builds up. So if we just have knowledge. Just a bunch of stuff. Just a head full of stuff about Jesus. But it doesn't manifest itself out. In service towards people. Then that's not good. Look at this. This is why we learn. Ephesians 3. I think this is up here. Um, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with all power through his spirit in your inner being. Here it is. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend. Now we're talking in, in, in realms of understanding that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length 
and height and depth and to know here it is again, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So there is a way to just learn stuff. But this stuff is supposed to drive us to help us understand if we learn systematic theology or eschatology or pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit or whatever, we learn all these ologies and that's all we do, then that's not what we want. Those study of things is supposed to drive us to learn about the depth of the love of Christ for us. All right, so look what he says. May have the strength with, with all the saints to comprehend what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So as we study, as we become more and more aware of the love of Christ, it's supposed to fill us with all the fullness of God. What all the fullness of God is, is the more and more fullness of the Holy Spirit. So as we learn, we're supposed to fall in love with Jesus more because we understand his love for us and be filled with the Holy Spirit more. If your study of knowledge, if your study of God does not involve that, then you're not fulfilling the point for knowledge. So you want to pursue a lifetime of study of the things of God. Um, Men, you should do this as well. This is not just for women, clearly. Men, you should do this as well. All right. Now. That's the second. We're going to move on to the third. But before we do that, I want to read you a couple quotes from Wayne Grudem because this is where we're going to get into the more dicey stuff. All right. First is this. Um, Grudem says, talking about this next, this next set of verses, don't put your life experiences into the Scripture. Meaning, I know women who are pastors and they do a great job. People get saved under their ministry. So since I ha- that happens... Then, as I read this text, I'm going to say, but I know, I know the exception to the rule. So that can't be right. What he's saying is, don't put your life experiences into the scriptures. Start with the scriptures first, then move to life experiences. Start with what, the way God said things should be ordered, then obey those things. Um, here's another way he says it. I have heard of many stories um, of women doing such teaching effectively, but I don't want to base my decision on people's experiences I am trying to decide how the scripture applies and then let scripture govern, govern our experiences, not our experiences govern scripture. Basically the same thing. But I wanted to uh, let us think that way. First, we want to know what this says and order our lives around it rather than take our stories in and say, well, the scriptures must be wrong because I know the exception. And you might know the exception, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the scriptures are wrong. Actually, it doesn't mean at all that the scriptures are wrong. They are. They're correct. Um, all right, look what it says here. I want a woman to learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was first... Or, for, let's stop there. Let's stop at verse 11 and 12. All right, here's the third one. Here's the third one. Um, women should not teach and exercise authority over a man in the church. That whole sentence is loaded with like stipulations, I know, and every word means everything. So don't shorthand it or not write it all down because it's all very important. Remember, this is Paul writing to a pastor in a church. These are directions for church. All right. So let me start out with the first thing. Um, One of the things that you might default to, um, a problem you might think is, well, I don't understand. Are you telling me women can't teach? That doesn't make sense. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that women should not teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. Um, because clearly, women are given the gift of teaching. So I'm not saying that women should not exercise their gift of teaching if that's given to them. They should. I'm saying that women should not teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. So if you have the gift of teaching, um, you should use it. And there's contexts of which that's appropriate. Um, it. Basically, you'll see what I mean later about what it means. So women who have the gift of teaching, you definitely should exercise that that gift. All right. Now, there's one thing I want you to see here, which is kind of tricky. In verse 12, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise. Um, To teach and to exercise, that verb right there is known as the infinitive. That's to whatever. Um, If if you ever heard about the infinitive form of the verb, it's it's whenever it says to, like to run, to play, to whatever. Um, Whenever in Greek... You come up to um, where there's two infinitives together to teach, to exercise. Those two infinitives are together. 
The rule is in Greek that those two things go together. Both of those serve together. So to teach and to exercise, it's not, well, she can teach, but she can't exercise authority. Or it's not, she can't exercise authority, but she can teach. Both of those have to be taken together. And they mean the things together. Teaching is exercising authority. Exercising authority is teaching. Does that make, does that make sense to everybody? Now, here's the unique thing. This word um, to exercise, this exercising of authority, or actually the whole verb is to exercise authority. In Greek, it's just one word. But to exercise authority is what's known as a hypox legomenon. I know you have no idea what that means, but basically that means this. Um, in the whole of the, of the New Testament, which is written in Greek, this word, this infinitive to exercise authority, is not used anywhere but once. This is the only place it's used. There is no other place where authority is exercised in the New Testament where they decided to use that word. They used another word. They didn't use this one. So this is really interesting. This makes it real. This is why volumes and volumes and volumes are spilled over this, this, this um, particular set of verses. But what we do know is this. Um, it doesn't mean that women can't speak ever. It doesn't mean that women aren't allowed to talk in services. Um, let me just go ahead and give you what my final um, conclusion is, and then we'll, I'll keep going. This is what the application from this that I believe to be the scriptural application. Um, a woman should not hold what is the position of elder pastor. That's what I think it means. A woman should not hold what is the position of the elder pastor. Um, some of you might have been raised in, in Southern Baptist churches. And so elder, we are Southern Baptist. Um, but most Southern Baptist churches don't have um, a body or plurality of elders. What this means is this. Um, most Southern Baptist churches have a senior pastor and then deacons. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Um, but that's not necessarily what I see the scriptures of the way church government is supposed to be organized. The way I see it, in which I will defend this when we get to chapter 3. Why? Um, I think that what happens is, in the scriptures, tell us that there should be multiple elders, multiple pastors in one church, and then multiple deacons. Now you say, well, sure, we have that. We have um, senior pastor, youth pastor, worship pastor, um, creative pastor, you know, everybody's named pastor, and then we have our deacons. Well, just because they have the title pastor doesn't mean they actually should be a pastor. They can be a minister, but they can't be a pastor. And you're like, that's just, um, that's just semantics. No, it's not. Um, we'll see in, in chapter 3 that in order to be called a pastor, you have to be gifted in the area of teaching, which means um, in our church um, right now, our staff... I'm the only one that's pastor. Everyone else is director or um, whatever, you know, leader, director, etc. Because right now they haven't moved into what I would call the, the office of elder or pastor. Also, the office of elder pastor doesn't necessarily mean your own staff at a church. It can also just be any man in the church that that exercises these gifts. They're able to teach the scriptures like a pastor would. They should also be put in this whole group of pastors. Now, Southern Baptist churches have a elder or a pastor and all these deacons. And usually what happens, usually these deacons, the word deacon just means servant. These deacons are not just servants, but they also serve in some type of capacity where they govern. They they shepherd the flock. And if they do that, they're also deacons, but they're also elders. And that's not how it should be. There should they should only be servants. They should only serve, and those who are able to govern or exercise authority should actually be put up with the pastor in the group of elders. Does all that make sense so far? That's why I say here that a woman should not hold the position of elder pastor. An, an elder pastor is the person that, that gets up here and preaches the word to you every week. There should be more. Our church has one, me, right now. But the reason why I'm teaching this text is so that we can, we can get men as First Timothy three one says to aspire to the office of elder called out. Um, <laughs> I've got somebody that wants me to go called out every week, but we're not doing that. Um, we want to. I did it for you today. I did it once. Um, anyway, that's it. That's the last time. Maybe. Um, so what we're trying to do is call out men to be elders with me, whether they're on staff or not on staff. Um, so one, a woman should not serve in this position of elder pastor. Now, 
There's lots of reasons why I have this position. And we're going to see, I'm going to show you some multiple texts of why I believe this to be the scriptural application here. There may be more applications, um, but I don't think there's necessarily more I need to mention this morning. The main one is, is that point three is that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. This teaching and exercise and authority is what's given to an elder. And we'll see that. And the reason why... Um, 1 Timothy 2 runs right into elders. Paul did that specifically on purpose. He, he, as he's telling us women should not teach or exercise authority, he uses the word teach. Right after this, he talks about elders in chapter 3. And one of the most key things that he tells them is that they should be, it says right here in the end of verse 2, able to teach. So he's trying to help us see that women should not be elders. We're going to get to that. All right. Let's go ahead and let me give you some explanations of why I think this is... Um, why I think this is a scriptural application. All right. Um, we're going to talk about the teaching and the authority. First of all, um, let's go back to Genesis 2. Back to Genesis 2. Um, because the reason why I want to go back to Genesis 2 and Adam and Eve is because Paul goes back to Genesis 2. If you look right after this, he says um, in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And look what he does right there. He refers back to Genesis 2 for us. For that word for in Greek is gar. That means I am, or the word because, I'm making an argument here. The reason why that statement is true is because of this next bit of information. So we want to understand this next bit of information to be able to understand the statement. For Adam was not deceived, I'm sorry, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but it was the woman. So he tells us two things. First, Adam was created first, and then woman was created next. And then after that, he says that Adam was not deceived. Woman was the one that sinned first. All right, let's go back to Genesis 2. This is, I'm picking up at verse 15. Genesis 2, 15. It should be up here. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Um, and it says, The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it of it, you will surely die. And then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper Fit for him. So we see here this this verbiage of helper is being given to Eve. Now I want you to understand this. This um, title and this this place that he's given to Eve as helper is not given after the fall. Okay, some some women kind of think that this helper having to kind of come alongside and be a helper of him is a consequence of sin. It's not a consequence of sin. This was given to Eve before the fall happened. It wasn't because. She, Sin had happened. This is the right ordering of the authority that God wants to give. The creation of authority is that God created men to be the leader and the woman to come along and be a helper. This does not mean that she's some kind of backwoods, caveman, like mentality the man can have. You're not supposed to do anything unless I ask you. But why don't your opinion? I'd ask you. It's not that at all. It's that she comes alongside and she compliments us. While I lead the home or the church, Women come alongside and compliment us and help us. So that's the first thing is that we can see in authority. I'm, I'm sorry, in creation, there's a creation of authority, which is man first, then women. And so Paul references this to let us know the reason why women should not teach or exercise authority is because in creation, there's a creation of authority. Men was created first and then woman was literally taken out of man. That's what woman means. Out of man, taken out of his rib. All right. Um. Warren Wearsby, he's a commentator. This is a really good thing here. Um, because when we hear that, like I said before, sometimes we'll start confusing value. We'll start saying, well, that must mean men are more valuable. No, absolutely not. Men and women are, are equal in value. This is what he says. Anyone who served in the armed forces knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. Just because someone's a higher rank doesn't mean they're more valuable or even... Able to do things better than you. This is what he says. A colonel is higher in rank than a private. But that does not necessarily mean that the colonel is a better man than the private. It only means that the colonel has a higher rank and therefore more authority. So what he's showing us here is that man was created first. So as far as value goes, both are equally valued by God. So that this truth that Paul has given is not cultural. Some people will say, all right, what's going on here is that in Ephesus, this is the, that's the city that, that Timothy was in. Um, what the problem was is that women were really kind of being disorderly and they just needed to be quiet. So Timothy wrote this because it was cultural to that specific time. 
And so the women in Ephesus need to be quiet. They need to not, or I would say, the women in Ephesus shouldn't be the elders. But today they can be. That's not true. The reason why it's not true is this. If Paul refers back to Adam and Eve, a different culture completely, and says, in that time, very beginning, in that certain culture, this is true. And, fast forward later, almost 5,000 years later, or 3,000 years later, it's true now. Then, if it was true in that culture in that time period, and it's true in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, in that culture and time period, that means this truth is true, it crosses all cultures. It's true for all time. That women should not serve as the primary elder pastor in a church. That's what I believe to be the scriptural truth from this. Alright? So, let me give you another text. Um... And it's right after that. It says, this saying, look at chapter 3. We're in the same First Timothy. This is another reason. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Here it is. The husband of one wife, or a one-woman man, literally. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. It's interesting that Paul is saying this is what a man should be able to teach. And he keeps directing all his conversation towards men. So here's another great indication that Paul is telling us that women should not serve as the elder pastor. All right. Now, um, as I said, he does not tell women they can't teach at all. And I want to give you some more what I would say is more concrete, concrete proof of why women shouldn't be elder pastors. Um, if, let's go, if you can flip three pages to the right to Titus. Um, Titus is also a book written to pastors. Um, Titus was a pastor in Crete, and he's writing to Titus, and he tells him basically the same thing in chapter 1 and verses um, 6 through 9. He gives all the elder qualifications there. So he's speaking directly towards men and what they should do, and that they should be the primary teachers in the church, just like First Timothy. It's almost an identical list. But look, this is interesting, because after he just told men how they should teach in chapter 2, he addresses women and tells them to teach and gives them the context of how they can teach. Look at this in chapter 2. Um, chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach. So clearly women should teach. And he's telling you how they should teach and who they should teach and what context they should teach. He does not take away the giftedness of, of you to teach. He says this. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So there's one place that lets us see that women are not prohibited from teaching at all. They are just prohibited from what I would call the office of elder pastor. Now, here's another text I want you to see. This is really interesting. Um, this is in Acts. This is, Acts is the book of the history of the church. After Jesus died, um, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he gave us basically the history of the church and how the church all began. And we're going to see here in chapter 18 a woman go with her husband and teach a man. He doesn't do it in, she, they don't do it in what I would call the setting of the church. Remember, I'm being very careful here. Women should not be elders or should not teach in the office of elder in the church. However, they can teach older women. And here's another place, another way that women can teach. If you have your Bible, flip over to Acts 18. Um, it won't follow word for word if you have the ESV because I put it in the New American Standard. Um, but you'll be able to get the gist. New American Standard is up on the screen. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native... Um, let me go in the New American Standard. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. So this man, could, he could bring it. Um, and he said, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he had a little bit that he was off on. Now look at this. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But... When Priscilla and Aquila, this was a husband and wife, heard him, they, look what it says, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You can't explain to someone the way of God more accurately unless you're actually teaching. And it tells us specifically that Priscilla and Aquila both did it. So there are contexts where women who have the gift of teaching can exercise their gift of teaching. So don't take it. 
at all that I'm saying if you have the gift of teaching, you need to be quiet. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that in the church, women should not hold the office of elder pastor. And that's all I'm saying. All right. Um, now, Paul moves on here to a, uh, an interesting little verse in verse 15. Um, because well, I, I was reading Calvin, and John Calvin is an, uh, he's a commentator, lived in the, in the time of the Reformation about 500 years ago. And this is what he says, um, that um, Paul is trying to offer comfort here to, to women. Um, because, l- let me read verse 15 to you. It says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Um, and what their commentators are saying is that here, women after reading all this, could be, and this is why I say Paul does not hate women. Paul loves women. Um, and he, he's very much for women being able... <laughs> Paul loves women. He's a woman, and I'm not saying that. Um, if, you, if you look all through the scriptures, um, Paul is very kind towards women. He speaks um, kindly towards them. He, he, he offers out things that they can do. He does not want them to serve as some second-class kind of citizen. The same with Jesus. Jesus and Paul were both... Um, very much desirable for women to do things. If you notice, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, the first person at the tomb was a woman. She was the one who carried the message back to the disciples that the Savior had risen. So the Bible does not by any means try to put women as some kind of backwoods, like second-class citizen by, by any means. Um, but look, Paul here is trying to offer them comfort here because he just reminded them that they were created secondly and authority does not lie with them. And he sees that they could be down, so he's trying to offer some comfort and some encouragement to them. Um, and so he, it's important not to read this by thinking that women actually become saved through childbearing. We're not saying that women don't get justified or be declared righteous or earn their salvation if they... Um, have children. That's not what he's saying. And I'll explain it to you what he's saying when he says, if they, they will be saved through childbearing, if they childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness. Um, what he's saying is that this saved through childbearing is not referring to giving birth, but, um, quote, enduring all the distresses which are manifold and severe, both in the birth and in the rearing of children. Now that is true. There are great distresses both in the birth of children and in the raising of children. Um, I am a, I, am a eyewitness threefold on this, about to be fourfold, um, that women who are mothers can definitely um, use the encouragement and comfort to endure the distresses that come along with motherhood. Um, that, and what I'm saying is that in the, in the family, men and women, women are giving roles which are ordained by God. So if the woman is following the role that God's given her, which includes childbearing and raising children um, as being a wife, that God values this obedience and shows, this shows us that if she's, she's um, being obedient to this, this role that God's given her, if she's going to be a mother, if she's being obedient to that, then it shows us the evidence of her salvation. It shows us the evidence of her faith. It shows us the evidence of her love. It shows us the evidence of her wanting to be holy before God. So that's what it's saying is that they will be saved through childbearing. And childbearing is not just talking about the actual giving birth, but the whole raising of children. They will show themselves to be saved through that whole process if they hold fast to Christ and their faith is strong and their love is strong and their holiness is strong. That's what he's saying. Um, and so this is, um, I think, for us, a great place to, to come to a close and, and start remembering. All right. Now, that's not just for women, that they should give evidence in their lives that their faith is strong, that their love is strong, and that their holiness is strong in Christ. This should be something that we all continually want to do, is put our faith in Christ, grow in our holiness, and grow in our love for Him. So um, the way I want to close it is with this. Um, I just want to close simply with the gospel. This is a little kind of closing the chapter on women in the church and just opening our, all of our minds up to the gospel. Um, Jesus came and lived a 100% perfect life. Now, the Bible tells us that we were created, and when we were created, the law was given to us, and we were supposed to live 100% in ob- obedience to this law. But the law is 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 evident to us that whenever we see it, 
we can't do it. And as a matter of fact, the law tells us that the Bible tells us that as we try to obey the law, that the law itself actually kills us spiritually. And we lie here completely dead spiritually with no hope whatsoever. But God knew that this was our condition and he sent his savior. He sent his own son, Jesus, to be obedient to the law perfectly, to go to the cross for us. Whenever we're dead spiritually, we should have all been crucified. Yet he went for us and and died the, the death that we should have died on the cross for us. And when he did, he purchased all that were going to be um, putting their faith in Christ out of this. In other words, when you're dead spiritually, you have no way to make yourself alive. But God in his goodness is calling you because he has the ability to raise people from the dead. Just as he raised Jesus from the dead, he has the ability to raise you spiritually from the dead. So if you're dead in your transgressions with absolutely no hope whatsoever, God can say to your heart, wake up and see the beauty of Christ on the cross. You would, if, you, if I don't wake you up spiritually, you would continue dead spiritually and go to hell eternally and spend eternally um, being consciously tormented forever. But because I'm good, I'm going to wake your heart up. And as I wake your heart up, what I'm going to do is help you see Christ on the cross. I'm not going to wake you up just for no purpose. I'm going to wake you up so that when you look at Jesus and you look at the cross, you're going to say, that was the life I should have lived and I couldn't. Yet he went and lived it for me. And that's the death I should have died. But I don't have to be killed. He was killed for me. So all of my affections, all of my hope and all of my faith is going to be placed on him for doing that for me. I am I'm eternally grateful for him. And you put your faith in his work on the cross. And when that happens, you will find and it's a slow process. I know for some of you, it's a it's a snail's crawl. But you will find these affections start being stirred up in your heart for Jesus because of the cross, because of the cross and because of the price he paid for you. And as that happens, when these real affections start pouring out because you love him, you can't believe that he would do this for you. He had absolutely no, no, um, no reason whatsoever to do that for you. He could have left you and been totally righteous, totally just to leave you dead spiritually. And he would have existed perfectly forever and perfect relationship with God, the father and the Holy Spirit. Yet out of mercy, out of grace, because of our dreadful estate, he, he extends grace to us, awakens our heart to see the cross And put our faith in him. And what that does is purchase for us life. We are now, as Ephesians 2 said, made alive spiritually. And when that happens, we're not just made alive for no purpose. We're made alive to have our affection stirred and now start living a life in 100% humble, servant-oriented gratitude towards Jesus. And it, it looks like, many ways, it looks like pursuing holiness Becoming more and more like Jesus. And so for today, the application is women, you want to be modest. Men, you want to be self-controlled. Also, not just pursuing holiness, but also pursuing service. When God awakens our hearts for Jesus, the way that it's supposed to look is there's, there's two main commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So as he awakens your heart for holiness, he also awakens your heart for service. If you just have a life that pursues holiness, but not also service, you're missing what God has designed you for. Now, all of this is made possible still through the cross. The cross is just not a place we come to where we get saved and then on our own strive for holiness and on our own strive for service. The cross is the place where we find forgiveness and then daily return to it because he daily gives us the desire and the ability to pursue holiness and service for our fellow man. And so that's what we want as a church to continually try to foster within you, that you would come here and you would see Jesus as the remedy who helps you pursue holiness every day, but also helps you pursue serving your fellow man here in the city. Your your parents or your your husband or wife or your co-worker or that person across the street that, that annoys you and drives you crazy because they have whatever going on in their life. You want to love them more than you want to hate them because Jesus has put love in your heart for him and therefore put love in your heart for other people. All of that is made available at the cross. 
All of that, as it says here in First Timothy, at the very end of chapter 2, whenever he's telling um, women, you need to continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And all that's made available for you at the cross. So as we go into worship this morning, I want all of us to be challenged to think of what the cross has purchased for us and that we would respond in loving admiration for Jesus because of the cross. And we would think of what he's done for us and we would pursue lives of faith, love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you so much for the gospel. The gospel is so beautiful. And Lord, so many of us go through life kind of, if we're believers, coming to the gospel and say, yeah, that's the thing I do right when I get saved. But after that, I kind of go away from it, leave the cross and just kind of live my life on my own. But that's not the design of you and that's not what you want us to do. You want us to come to the cross and stay at the cross and continually pursue faith love, and holiness. And so I pray for all my friends here this morning. If some of them have moved away from the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has found us in our lowly estate, dead in sin, and awakened our hearts and illumined our minds to see the cross as the most beautiful reality in all of the world, that we would see truly what the gospel is and that we would worship you this morning because of what you've done for us. Father, that we wouldn't come in this week, hear a sermon about women and what their roles are in the church and not remember that the gospel is the most important thing in the Bible. There's a lot of conversation that can come from hearing a text like this. And so I pray, God, as we think of all the theological positions that people can hold and all the ways that we could take this text and what we think and what our two cents are, that we would not take, that we would definitely take a step back and remember what the gospel is, what Jesus has done for us, and that we're made holy because of the cross. And that we would worship you this morning in song, and that we would worship you as we leave and service to our fellow man. I pray these things in Jesus' name.